John chapter 11 is where we'll be. We'll be working through verses 17 through 27. Um, I was a really weird kid growing up. Um, I don't know if that's obvious or not, but I was. And I don't know if it was the product of the 80s um, that made me weird. That's what I'm going to blame it on. Um, But I was. I was a really strange kid. And one of the things that I, I had a major fear of was death. I would obsess over death. And I, I don't know if it was because I had older siblings that I was allowed to stay up late with and watch all the uh, Freddy Krueger, Friday 13th movies with them. That's what I did uh, as a kid. And that scared me all the time. I was always thinking about if I have this dream, I'm going to get attacked by Freddy in the middle of the night. Or uh, I don't know if it was the horrible death metal uh, music that my brother listened to of Megadeth and Iron Maiden that I subjected myself to at that age. Um, but I was scared to death of death. And I, even, I would even obsess over um, how I was going to die. I didn't know how I was going to go. And I was always so worried. I always wanted to go. I just had this, I saw a movie once where a guy died by going off of a, um, a cliff with a motorcycle. And I just thought that would be awesome if, I, if that could be worked out somehow, if I could work that out with God and he could, if I would die that way, that would be perfect because I wouldn't feel any pain and I would go out heroic. Um, and, but my biggest fear is still to this day of getting eaten by a shark. And I think that to me is by far the worst thing because I'm not a great swimmer already. And just the fact that I might lose a limb and then watch the blood kind of go up over the water and the shark body and not knowing where it is or so I, I just, I'm so afraid of that. I do think it would be a cool resurrection though, uh, when my glorified body comes up and I'm meeting with Jesus and the parts of my body come back together. And then I, uh, but I've, anyway, I've thought about this a lot, as you can tell. And, um, and I think part of it too is the, the shark thing, I think is again, the product of the eighties, the Jaws movies. And, um, but eighties kids are messed up and I, I was born in 79. So I don't know if I can even claim eighties, but I, um, I was afraid of death, uh, specifically as a little kid, and I've, I'm recovering from that fear. Um, and I think part of it is uh, because once you wrap your mind around the gospel, you begin to see that, there is, that death is not the end for us. Amen? That death is not the end for believers in Jesus Christ. And so we have much to be thankful for this morning in Jesus' resurrection. And I I know that there are many here that have been affected in a great way by death. Maybe someone close to you has died, and you are working through the weightiness of that and, the, and, the, and missing them and grieving over them. And um, maybe for some of you, you think you're invincible, and you think you'll never die because you're 21 years old, and you're in college, and you don't feel any pain after you play Ultimate Frisbee like I did yesterday. But let me tell you, um, you will feel death. It will haunt you. You will start to play ultimate frisbee and you say, oh, I can't jump as high as I used to. And now I have aching pains when I wake up in the morning. And that is where I'm at today. And that's why I realized that death is coming sooner than I thought. And every single day you are dying. All right. So welcome to Integrity Church. Glad that you're here. You are dying. That's my encouragement for you this morning. Um, But you are, you're dying and you're getting closer to death. And so what that looks like when you're my age, when you get to be 40 or 50 or 60, and you start to think about your life insurance policies and your retirement plans, because you are thinking about dying. And there's no escaping physical death. But we do have hope because Christ gives us something beyond the grave. Christ gives us, because of his resurrection, a new life. 
a resurrection of ourselves. And so we can look at Jesus through John 11, and we can see that Jesus has power over death. It's not to say that Jesus is not affected by death in any way. I'm not saying that Jesus is heartless when it comes to those who receive loss. It is not the case at all. As a matter of fact, uh, here's a verse that you can memorize in John 11. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's Jesus wept. And Jesus, in the end of John chapter 11, he cries because of the, the weight of death and the effects that death has on his friends. And so if you turn with me to John 11, uh, what we see is Jesus, he has friends, Mary, Martha, and a guy named Lazarus. And they are siblings. And Jesus has built this friendship with them. And what happens is that Jesus learns that his friend Lazarus has become pretty ill, that he's going to die. And he gets word of this. And what happens is Jesus has a strange response. It's not the way that we would respond if a friend of ours is ill. But if you read the Gospels, one of the things that you know is Jesus says things that can be very disturbing in the New Testament. You talking with that? I don't know if you've ever read the New Testament and actually said, I hate what he just said. I mean, if you haven't said that, you're not reading the New Testament. Because there's times where Jesus says, you should hate your father and mother in comparison to your love for God. Uh, You should deny yourself daily. He tells his disciples, you should take up your cross and follow me, which is like saying, take up your electric chair or take your noose and follow me. Be prepared to die for me, is what Jesus says. And these are very shocking words that Jesus says. And here we see it once again, something to me that is very disturbing. As soon as he finds out that his friend Lazarus is dying, verse 4, John chapter 11, verse 4, he basically says, God's going to get the glory and he's going to be glorified through me. Is that not strange? Is that, a, is that like something that you would do if you were counseling someone who has, had a friend that was terminally ill? Well, praise God, right? No, you wouldn't say that. This is what Jesus says when he finds out that his friend is ill. Uh, the second thing that we see is in verse 6. It says that when Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that's strange. So let's look at what happens in verse 14. They find out he died. And let's see what happens when Jesus finally comes on the scene. John chapter 11, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for how many days? Four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met with him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, I find this very strange because Jesus finds out that his friend Lazarus is ill. We don't know how far away he is, but we know that Jesus is relatively close 
to where Lazarus is. He could travel to see his friend Lazarus. And he, what, what happens when he finds out? He stays for two days when he finds out. And then by the time he shows up, four days in the tomb. And it seems, this is not, is this not the way that God works? It seems that God is never on time for anything. We pray for God to do certain things. We pray for God to answer certain requests. God, would you bring me a spouse? God, would you help me get out of debt? God, would you help me get well out of this sickness? God, would you get me out of college? Right? I've been here for seven years for crying out loud. <laughs> get me out of here, right? God, would you help my kids to, be, to, to be, obey their mom and dad? And, and it seems like God just doesn't answer those prayers when we need them. But here's the thing. He's on time. He's always on time. But it doesn't seem that way because it doesn't fit in our plan. It doesn't fit in our finite minds. And so what Jesus does is he shows up, and four days after Lazarus has been in the grave. And not only is he seemingly late, but he's seemingly late and he runs into a frantic female. Now, I don't know much about what that means, but when you're late and there's a frantic female at the end, I've heard, never experienced, but I've heard that that is a very difficult thing to overcome. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is late, and there's a frantic female in the end saying, if you were here sooner, my brother would still be alive. And so let's see how Jesus responds here. He listens to this woman, and she then tells him, I know that whatever you ask, I'll receive it. So why is it my brother better? And this is exactly how Jesus is when it comes to our anxiety, how it comes to our, when we think God's timing should be better or according to ours. When Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, here's another disturbing thing that Jesus says to his disciples. When his disciples were anxious about where they might go next or where God might send them next, Jesus tells them in Luke 12, and I'll just read it, verse 22. Jesus tells his disciples this, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as such as, as a small th uh, a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothe the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And I love this because he gives some comparisons. He says, consider the ravens. You know what a, a raven is? It's basically a rat with wings. It is an ugly bird. 
I mean, Thomas Kincaid never painted a raven. Not that I would know because I don't like his paintings, but I've heard that he's never painted a raven. Now, he's saying, if I am going to do this for a rat with wings, how much more will I do for my disciples, for those who repented of their sins and those who put their faith and hope in me alone? How much more would I do for them? Consider the lilies as as things in the field will grow up, as the harvest will grow, and we eat it, and it's gone the next day. And if God grows that, how much more will he provide for his own? And so Mary, or Martha, rather, had this understanding that Jesus would provide in this way, but she didn't see it through the lenses of, how much more will I grant you, my disciple, And so for us this morning, it seems that God's timing, that he's always late, but I want to tell you that his timing is perfect. Does he give us whatever we ask? Only according to his will and his perfect timing, yes, he does. So what she's saying is correct, but it's all under the authority or all under the banner of his sovereign control. And so as she's seeing this, let's see what Jesus says in response. John 11 Verse 23, it says this. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, here's the way that Martha would have understood the resurrection. She would have understood it the way that the Jews understood the resurrection. They believed that we would have glorified bodies in the last day, that we would soon, we would in the last day have a new body. But what she didn't understand was that she was standing right in front of the source of which that resurrection would happen. And so what Jesus does is he begins to tell her that he is the source of the resurrection, that we're not talking about physical resurrection anymore. We're talking about a spiritual resurrection that we would be in heaven with him forever. Amen. And so this is what Jesus says in verse 25. He says this, I said to her, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. If you know anything about John's gospel, one of the things that John does is he gives us seven I am statements. And it's Jesus telling us what he is. He says, so he says things like this. I am the bread of life. I am uh, the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so if people always say, I hear it all the time, Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible. Well, if he never claimed to be God, he is one narcissistic fool. Because he's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and life. And I am the vine. These are major, bold statements. And so let me give you a little context on what this actually means when he says, I am the resurrection and life. To a Jewish ear in the audience that Jesus is speaking to in John when he makes these I am statements, he is saying something that they would be very familiar with. The Jewish culture would understand stories of Abraham and stories of Moses. They would sing songs of Abraham and Moses. 
And to be a good Jew, you'd have to know these stories. It's like, almost like saying, you're not really American unless you've seen the Indiana Jones movies. You're not really American unless you've watched Chevy Chase drive his car across the family to go to Wally World. You're not really American unless you know these movies and your family knows these movies. And the way that the Jews had family together where they would go back and rehearse and remember the stories of Moses, the stories of Abraham. And so what story they would remember well would be the story of Moses, that Moses was just a farm boy. He worked for his father-in-law, and he would tend to his father-in-law's sheep. And in one day, God just chooses to use him as a vessel to set his people free. And so what he does is God shows up in the form of a burning bush to just a plain old farm boy. And he tells him, I want you, Moses, to be my mouthpiece, which Moses has apparently some type of speech impediment, which is the irony in the story. I want you to be my mouthpiece, and I want you to go to the most, fam- the most powerful, famous ruler in all of Egypt, the most feared ruler of all of Egypt, and I want you to tell him to let my people go, release them from captivity. And so Moses asked, How am I gonna, what am I going to tell him? Burning bush said to let my people go? No, he says, tell him I am. Oh, that makes way more sense. Thank you, right? Tell him I am. And he does it. And through plagues and God's punishment and God's wrath, he does set his people free. And the way that the Jews, remembering that story, would talk about God, they would remember him as I am. And so when Jesus comes on the scene when in the New Testament and he speaks to Jew, Jew, Jewish audiences, he tells them things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's saying is, I am the same I am that led your people out of captivity. Therefore, he's saying, I am God himself in the flesh. And not only that, he's saying because he is the resurrection, he's basically saying there is no resurrection outside of the person and work of Jesus. There is no life outside of the person and work of Jesus. And so... Here's we have this beautiful statement in John 11 of this picture that God is saying there's no life outside of him. And then he tells Martha this. He says, verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he died, yet shall he live. And if everyone lives who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. There's two phrases that show up here in those several verses. It's the phrase, believe in me. In the actual, in the Greek language, it's original language. It it actually means 
believe into me, which is actually a way that you would describe a marriage. You believe into Christ, that you are one with Christ. That's what, this, that's what a relationship with him is, that you and Christ are one together. You believe into Christ. He's asking her, do you believe in me in this way, that everything in your life would be based on this truth, that I am the resurrection and the life? And I love her response. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And my prayer is that everyone in this room would be over to say that. My fear is that there are, there are some in this room who cannot say that because you don't believe. But what Jesus says is when he talks about the one who's coming to the world, here's what he's describing. Here's, here's what she's describing, Martha. She's describing the one who came and was born of a virgin, who didn't carry the curse of our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they were deceived in the garden, they chose to worship themselves more than God. So Jesus was born of a virgin, so he didn't carry that curse. Jesus lived 30 years in obscurity, in just a few years of ministry, but all of those years that he's walked on this planet, he never sinned. He never had a perverse thought. He never had a greedy action. That Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. But there was a problem because people rejected him because he would make statements like, I am. He, would, he claimed to be God. See, so he was scoffed. He was mocked, and he was nailed to a cross on the most brutal, horrific deaths that one could ever face, one that criminals deserved to die on, but he was innocent. And we can look at all the graphic details of the cross, but what was the most powerful truth about the cross is that he bore all of our sins on the cross for those that he gave his life for. And the wrath of God was poured on his precious, perfect, spotless son until he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished. Three days later, he was thrown into a tomb and three days later, the Bible tells us all gospels record that he rose from the grave, conquering the penalty of Satan, sin, and death. The death that we deserve Christ took it on. And what the resurrection of Jesus proves is that what he did on the cross is sufficient. What he did on the cross is enough. And so this is Martha saying she believes the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, and she believes that through him, the resurrection and life, she can have eternal life. And my hope is this morning that you grasp the reality of his cross and his resurrection. Because when we start to look at life through these lenses, everything about us should change. Everything. Because our lives then are marked by this truth. 
Our lives are then based on the reality that Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the grave, which means this. As believers in Christ, we look to see a better day, and this world is not our home. We look to see a better day because we know that we, too, because he has been resurrected, we will be resurrected, and we will have a new life with him for all of eternity, and we will worship him for all of eternity with no sin, with no doubt, with no fear, with no anxiety, and no death. And so for me, this is encouraging because this is the closest to hell I will get. And I'm going to receive a new life with him. So if you're a person who came this morning, you have tons of pain, tons of baggage, tons of anxiety, tons of fear, sin that you would never want to confess. I can tell you your only hope is in Christ. Because through Christ, we, this world is not our home and we live to see a better day. And as I talked about earlier, I played ultimate frisbee yesterday. I injured my leg. My knees are again terrible, right? I got sunburn, which when you have red hair, that means your freckles hold hands. That's what happened to me yesterday. And I mean, I feel like aches and pains and Matt talked about running a 5K. I think the integrity staff talked about 5K, and that just, the thought of that scares me, right? But here's the thing. Every time I feel pain, I'm reminded this world is not my home. This is not where I belong. And I'm going to live to see a better day. And here's the thing. If Christ did not rise from the grave, I would not have that hope. I mean, the only thing I would... I would have to change everything about my understanding of the world as we know it if Christ did not rise. Because I don't, I don't have a better day to look forward to if Christ didn't rise from the grave. And so this is the closest I'm going to get to hell because I look to see a better day. Praise God for that. And so for you who don't know Christ, you never put your hope in Jesus. You've never confessed your sins to Jesus and you never surrendered your life to Jesus, this is the closest to heaven that you will get on this earth. This is all that you have to hope for and long for. Then you die and you will not resurrect. You will enter into eternal torment where you will not receive the joy and worshiping Jesus for all of eternity. And so if I could plead with you this morning that you would trust in Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You would put your faith only in him. And for believers this morning, my encouragement for you is that you would find hope in the resurrection. As we're here on this earth, we face pain, We face trials, we face suffering, but we live to see a better day because Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. God, would you help us this morning respond to your gospel?